This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast designed to help equip Christians to be able to defend their faith and be confident in their faith. Hey guys, welcome to Christ, Culture, and Coffee. I'm your host, Robbie Lashwa, and I'm here with my co-host, Tyler Hurley. How's hey, it going, Tyler? It's going great. How are you doing? Doing good. We are live at Palmcroft Church. And we are in their yes. brick house coffee shop with some awesome people staring at us because we're doing it live and we're going to take some Q&A at the end. And this is going to be a great night. Yeah, we're super excited. The topic today for today is we're going to take a break from like the series that we've been doing, just a special topic for tonight. Uh, this is going to be on different views in hell Yep. and exactly what there is out there different versions of uh, theology, theological beliefs that people hold to, and we're going to try to do our best to just uh, cover that and hopefully make sense of hell. So. Yeah, what's the deal with it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why does it exist? And what do we believe about it? And what are what are even evangelical views on it um, yes. that differ from one another? So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but before we do that, we always start our show off with a coffee tip. That's the coffee portion of the show. And so, Tyler, you have the coffee tip for today. Yes. Now, uh, for today, I want wanted to talk about, this is something that a lot of people may already know about, but this is about how to make latte art. Okay. Now like, I don't know how to make latte art. You know what? I never did either. So that's why I was hoping that this would be helpful for everybody. uh, For those of you who might not know, like, like us. Um, so latte art, you know, it's like the foam when you get your, your latte and you oh, see I know like, little is. shapes and everything. Yeah. I've had it a lot. I have too, yeah, but I've good. never made it. No. Uh, like I've made lattes for myself at home, but I've never actually made the art on top of it. So super easy. All you got to do is just use froth milk in a pitcher with a long spout, but there's a specific method that mm-hmm. you can go about it to make it easier. And if you just lift it about an inch or so, ex- like try to be close to an inch, above, lift it above the mug, and you pour it out slowly enough to where it pours a stream that is about as thin as a pencil. This sounds complicated. It does a little bit. That sounds tough. But if you try to like, like visualize that and measure it as close as possible to that, you can end up forming the perfect shapes in the latte for the coffee art. So all you gotta do, lift it up a couple inches and do that in order to make whatever shape and design that you want. But a bonus tip to kind of include with this is uh, I know a lot of people are big fans of oat milk, almond milk, uh, things like that, but the best thing to do for latte art is just straight up regular whole milk. Okay. And uh, now for people who might be lactose intolerant, too Sorry, bad. but too bad. Yeah, yeah that's it. Uh, that's the thing. So a whole milk, the reason why it's best for this is because um, it creates like a smoother, more textured foam when you're pouring in the latte art. Yeah, so that's th- true. Have you ever had like a non-fat cappuccino? I've never, I've never it's tried terrible. it. Like the foam, is not, <laughs> it's not very good. So yeah. Well, well, so that's, that's the thing. So it's not just about like the taste of it uh-huh. and what comes with the milk, like the flavor of the milk, but the reason you want to use whole milk is because it frosts better. Nice. And so that's the tip for you guys. So that is how you can make latte art. And now I'm, I, it's hard to explain how to make exact shapes, Sure. but the method, you can pretty much learn and practice how to do it as long as you follow the method of using whole milk in a pitcher with a long spout lifted up about an inch or so. That's about the, like the thickness of a pencil. I like it. Well, that's good. Thanks for the coffee tip for today. Now let's move on to talking about the issue at hand, hell. We are going to be talking about hell uh, and a lot of variations of it and ideas about it and scripture on it. But before we do that, we really want to get into talking about uh, open-handed and closed-handed issues. So why don't you break down what that means when it comes to Christian doctrine? Yes, exactly. And this is really important. That's why we wanted to start off with this for you guys. Um, Just talking about the difference between closed-handed and open-handed issues. Um, so a close-handed issue is the core of the Christian faith, right? That you cannot say that you you believe, don't believe in these things and say, consider yourself a Christian. And yeah, it is what the faith is. Yeah, it's non-negotiables, yep. essentially. And that is uh, God's existence, of course, because that's a big part of the faith. The deity of Christ, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus— and then salvation by grace through faith. Yeah, some people might even yeah. throw in there like inerrancy of scripture. Of course, um, but yeah. I, th- I think you can be a Christian and not believe in that. I believe in inerrancy of scripture. Right, yeah. But I think that there's some people who might be saved who don't. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. close-handed issues, what will we fight for? What is it? If you don't believe these things, you cannot be a Christian. Exactly, yes. So, so that's really important. So we want to just establish that right away. Um, open-handed issues, on the other hand, that's a little bit different. 
uh, it's the opposite end of the spectrum. There are is issues that are theological doctrines that um, Christians can disagree on openly, and it's okay. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not a problem. Uh, for, well, it might be a problem. Well, it could be. But yeah, it could be correct. <laughs> but it's uh, not bad. Yeah, like there's no like serious doubt like that you're a Christian if you don't believe in these things necessarily. Sure. So there's a difference of uh, some of these open-handed issues are speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues, right? Or uh, methods of baptism, right? Sprinkling, submersion. Mm -hmm. There's difference on Dunking. that. Dunking. Yeah, I guess that's submersion. Submersion, Same yeah. Well, this is a Baptist church, right? Yeah, there you George? go. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, um, and then your views on the rapture, right? Like what, what is your um, eschatology, yeah. end times theory, uh, like the millennium, when is that going to take place? Um, and, but for tonight's discussion, this is one of those open-handed issues, right? We're going to be focusing on the extent of punishment and duration of hell. And that, that's yeah. an open-handed issue. It is. And, and it, we got to be careful with this because we are not going to talk tonight about um, do all paths lead to God because that's not uh, Christianity. So we're talking about within the confines of Christianity, differences that people have when it comes to the doctrine of hell, what it is, how long it exists, if people continue to exist there forever, if people ever get to be let out of there, if people get annihilated while they're there. Those are the questions we're, we're talking about tonight, but we're not going to discuss um, all paths lead to the deity because that is not a Christian thing. Exactly. That yeah. would be a close-handed issue. Correct. This is open-handed, though, and so within evangelicalism, there are three different ideas about hell, um, and uh, what we have to do with any open-handed issue is always go to scripture hmm. and say, okay, what does scripture teach us about this? And we can disagree, but what are the disagreements and what are the interpretations and how can we come to conclude on what we believe about certain doctrines? Exactly. Now, before we get into the three different types that there are, the three different views within evangelical Christianity, um, the problem of hell really is a subset of the problem of evil, right? And this has been an issue that people have thought about for a long time. So going way back to the Greek philosopher Epicurus, he lived in the 4th and 3rd century BC. So this is a long time ago. Uh, he said, God either wishes to take away evils and is unable, or he's able and he's unwilling, or he's neither willing nor able, or he is both willing and able, right? And that's the, the hard part that we come to with the problem of hell and the Christian faith is, okay, we say that God is all good or all loving. We also say that he's all powerful. And we also say that he's all knowing. And so you get into this, this conundrum of, okay, if he knows that people are going to go to hell and he's all powerful and he could stop that from happening and he says he really cares about us, why does hell exist? Why doesn't he stop people from going there? Why did he create people that he knows would eventually go there? So that's where the problem comes in. It was how do we juggle his omniscience, his omnibenevolence, his all goodness, all lovingness, and his omniscience? How do, how do those yeah. three things fit together? Um, and so Christianity has been attacked um, by this argument for a long time. Epicurus talked about it. David Hume, uh, the, the philosopher from the 1700s, he talked about this very thing. He said, how can uh, God be all loving and send people to hell, right? Why would God create people he knows and destined for hell? And if he's all powerful, couldn't God create a world in which everybody went to heaven, right? And we would all agree, like, man, that sounds great. Like, I like that idea. I wish God created a world yeah. in which everyone went to heaven. Um, but if you, th if you think about that, just, just on the base level, so um, do any of you have unsaved family members? Grandparents, parents, yeah? Okay. But, but you might be a Christian who were brought about by unsaved people in your heredity, Right? Well, so if he created a world where there were no unsaved people, how would it get to you getting saved through unsaved people? Does that make sense? So maybe God could have created a world where everyone chose to believe in him, but maybe that world could only be like four or five people, right? And so God is trying to optimize the amount of people who could choose to love him by allowing people to reject him or to love him based on their choice. And so mm. these, are the, these are the things that we want to look at, look at. But the idea that God can't be all-loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful at the same time and have evil or have hell exist isn't really a problem for us if he has a good reason 
for allowing it. Right. And that's what we want to look into. And that's what these three different views of hell look at. How do we uh, make sense of God's all-powerfulness, all-knowingness, and all-lovingness? And we believe that the Bible teaches there's a hell. So what do we make sense of that? So the first uh, of the options, and it's probably the one you're most familiar with because you go to this church, it is the traditional view, or sometimes it's called the literal view of hell. And this is the idea that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment for those who chose not to place their trust in Jesus as their savior. Uh, This punishment is both physical and it's mental, and it lasts forever. Another important aspect of this view is that it can't be reversed after you die. And the verse that people go to is in Hebrews, right? It's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. So that is the traditional uh, idea of hell, the literal idea that a lot of churches in evangelicalisms believe Mm. and teach and preach to be true. Now, the issue that arises with this is how is God good if he'll punish someone forever? How does the punishment fit the crime? Think about it. You live your life crazy for 90 years but then forever you are punished in hell. That doesn't seem to be just. And don't we believe that God is just? So these are the questions that get posed is how does this make sense? And we know what scripture says about this. We know what Jesus says about it, but how do we make sense of it? So there's other opinions in Christianity that try to make sense of these issues and these these problems about duration and uh, equity uh, when the punishment doesn't really fit the crime. So you want right. to talk about the, the next view? Yeah, yeah. And so this view is known as the conditional immortality view. And a lot of people know this as annihilationism, right? Uh, the idea is that hell will eventually involve the extinction or annihilation of tormented souls after a specific period of time, meaning it's not eternal, okay? That's the idea here. So uh, this idea suggests that immortality only applies to those who have accepted Jesus as their savior and go to heaven as they are the only ones who truly have eternal life. Uh, in this view, hell is finite and is not eternal. That, that's essentially what it is. Uh, so when you really boil this down, though, the idea of hell with this view still holds that it's a terrible place, right? That's absent from the, absent from the presence of God. Uh, It also has people who did not accept Christ, and these people do not have the choice to leave hell if they please. That's still all-encompassed within the annihilationism view. Mm -hmm. Uh, Overall, the idea is that God, in his goodness, though, can't possibly allow human souls to be tormented for all eternity. Kind of like what Robbie had just said a minute ago, like that thought— does the punishment fit the crime? That's yeah. that's what this uh, this view tries to answer. Well, they, we even as humans, yeah. right? Like even like you know serial killers, we'll, we'll put them in jail and we'll give them a you know four hundred and twenty five year sentence. Yeah, it's like what is that? And again, they're going to yeah. die before that. But the idea is that's about as much time that would pay off this type of a crime, right? We think in that way, and yeah. so for God to do it forever, the annihilationist says no. There needs to be an end date to the punishment in order for God to be just and to be fair. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the idea of it. The punishment of an eternity of suffering does not seem to fit the crime. Uh, But arguments for this view, I want to start off with, as we said earlier, the idea of God sending people to hell for eternal suffering seems cruel because it seems to go against his nature of being a good God, right? Mm. Why would he let someone suffer for eternity for only a lifetime of sin? Uh, Well, this idea uh, that God would annihilate souls kind of comes from the idea of God uh, having equal justice. And uh, this idea is gathered from passages like Exodus 21, 23 through 25, which says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Uh, and so this idea is that God is just, right? And he it ought to be part of his nature that the punishment fits the crime. Mm-hmm. Equal justice. That's the idea here. Another thing, too, that they'll say is um, they'll point to John three sixteen. Right. Um, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not, what's the word? Perish. They say perish means destroyed. Mm-hmm. Perish means non-existent. Perish means you're not around. It doesn't mean you're existing somewhere being tormented. And so if the opposite of what we get as believers is perish, 
then annihilationism is true. That's that's the argument they'll use. Is they hang a lot on that word perish and other places that use that word. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's kind of the idea there. It's perish, right? It's only finite. It's not eternal. Uh, and then lastly, arguments for this view are also rooted in the fact that scripture kind of seems vague in some aspects of how hell is eternal, right? Um, there's certain passages and stuff uh, the way that you could see that it talks about hell, uh, where generally it seems vague. So this allows room to believe that it could, in theory, be a place that people are in only for a limited time of suffering. And that kind of goes into the idea of what Robbie said about perish, right? Like, what does that mean exactly? So they'll look at um, examples like that in scripture and say that that supports that you could believe in an annihilationist view. Mm -hmm. So uh, with that, we also have some arguments against I wanted to go over here for this view. Um, people who hold to a str stronger views of free will and allowing, uh, uh, and God allowing humanity to choose more openly what happens to them suggest that God not allowing human beings to choose hell for eternity is in itself against his nature because essentially what's happening is he's not allowing his creation to make the decision if they want to be eternally separated from him. Mm. Right. Because because we would uh, uh, like it, free will believing Christians would believe that God gives free will as an act of love. So in order to let them have the choice, they also have to have the choice of choosing to go to hell if they so please. Right. If they want to. Uh, so rather than it being an act of mercy, annihilating souls would be an unjust act that violates human freedom and removes their choice of being separated from him for eternity because mm -hmm. that's what they originally wanted, right? Now, it's interesting because I know some annihilationists, and they'll say no um, because the, the effect of them being annihilated is an eternal effect. Sure. So they're not being tormented eternally, but they are separated eternally. Right, yeah. So again, yeah. you get into these like little distinctions on what people think. So it's, it's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah it kind of keeps coming back full circle. You're like, well, okay, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So it's, it's something to think about. But overall, the main argument pointed to is that God loves his people and mm -hmm. wants them to choose to love him of their own free will, which means he would have to also respect their choice to choose against being with him if yeah. they desire to be separated. That's where the, the main argument against annihilationism is held at, is because... Yeah. Um, well, and I also think in yeah. all of the verses that say eternal, forever and of ever. Of course, yes. The worm yes. does not die, um, things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's and so that's a, that's the thing. So you're, you're right. There are aspects of it where they say, like, yes, like eternal su suffering, that idea. So it's interesting in thinking, like, how the annihilationists would say that it's kind of vague in scripture on the description of hell and how long you're there. Yeah. Whereas clearly, I, I would say that I've seen like scripture elements or it sounds like it's coming from a place of like, yeah, this is a place of long lasted suffering. I think too, one thing yeah. that's important to ask is can God, because when we talk about God's uh, all powerfulness, we don't mean God can do anything he wants. Like we tell little kids right. that in Sunday school, like God's all powerful. It means he can do anything. It's a lie. He can't do anything. Uh, the Bible tells us this, right? He, he can't lie. Uh, he can't go back on his word. He tells us things he can't do. Uh, he can't change. There's a lot of things God can't do. Right, it's part they're, of his nature. Yeah, but they're all good things. So one of the questions I've thought about is, can God annihilate his greatest creation? That's, I, I think that's interesting. Like, wouldn't we say, you know, when it comes to, like, fine art, like, um, you know, depending on what you like, Monet or Picasso, whatever, but you would say it's a crime if, if you know, Leonardo da Vinci would destroy the Mona Lisa. Like, that's a crime. He shouldn't be allowed to do that. He couldn't do something like that. And then you get to God where he says, you know, we're the pinnacle of his creation. We're special created beings that are unlike anything else because we're made in his image and likeness. And part of that is that we're like God in a lot of ways. One of the ways, I think, is that we are uh, immortal. Uh, God's eternal. So he's into the past and into the future forever. We're not into the past forever. Right? I, had a, I had a starting date. It was probably the end of 1982. <laughs> right? And then I was born in September of 83. That was my start date. Um, but... Being made in his image and likeness, I believe that no matter if you believe in Jesus or not, a human being has an eternity future. And I don't know if it is something God can do to annihilate 
beings made in his image, right? And I'm not saying like that's for sure where I'm at, but it's just, it's an interesting thought. Is that something God can even possibly do? Yeah, it's something, I don't know. It's something that we should think about. Yeah, to annihilate the yeah. human soul, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, the next view, if you want, we're going to cover that is uh, Christian universalism. Yeah. Yeah. One, one thing, too, I wanted to mention before we move into this yeah, is when we talk about hell, what are we talking about? <laughs> I know that sounds weird, yeah. but in scripture, there's so many different descriptions of, you know, Hades is the Greek word used. Uh, Gehenna, Jesus uses for afterlife idea of torment. Uh, Tartarus is used. There's all these different, Sheol. There's these different words. And then in our English Bible, we translate Hades hell. But the words used in scripture aren't even talking about the eternal lake of fire because Hades and death, according to Revelation 20, get thrown into the lake of fire after Jesus comes back and after he reigns for a thousand years and after the final great war. So what are we talking about when we talk about hell is a good question too, right? Mm. Uh, when people die now and they don't believe in Jesus, where do they go? Well, they don't go to the lake of fire because that's not happening yet, right? But where do they go? We know that Christians go to be with Jesus, right? To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Uh, Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. But where do the non-believers go? And, and I think we get a really great insight into that in Jesus' story about Lazarus and the rich man. Right? Lazarus was a slave yeah. of this rich dude. They die, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, which is the good side of Sheol, Hades. And then the rich guy goes to the bad side, and he says, I'm burning up. He literally says, I'm dying here. Can you please? This fire is making me thirsty. And he says, can you dip your finger in water and, and give me some? And Abraham speaks up, and he says, listen, there's a chasm between us. Like, he can't come over there. You can't come over here. Like, we can't do this kind of a thing. Uh, and then he says, can somebody go tell my brothers about this place so that they don't have to come here? And Abraham says, listen, if they have the prophets and the law and they don't believe that, they're not even going to believe if someone rises from the dead to tell them, right? Uh, and it's so, so Jesus tells this story. Some people believe it's a parable. I don't believe it's a parable. I think it's a real story because Jesus never uses um, specific names in parables. And in this one, he uses this guy's name, Lazarus as a specific person. So very interesting. And he, yeah. he also doesn't say it's a parable. He just tells the story. Um, so we know from that that people die not believing in Jesus, go to this place called Hades, which will eventually be thrown into the lake of fire. So all that to say, <laughs> when we're talking about hell, right, the English word hell, it's important to define what we're talking about. And, and what we're getting at is the final, the final eternal place after everything's said and done in human history. Right. We're in yeah. eternal future in heaven with, with God, and uh, the lake of fire is where Satan and, and everyone who didn't believe in him is. So that's, that's kind of what we're talking about, that place. Does that make sense? I, w I should have said yeah, that in no, the that, No, that's, and that's yeah, great. Help out a little. No, and it's great because we, we have to make sure that we're, we're clear and we're defining our terms with what we're discussing. Yep. It's important. So, so good. the three main views are the traditional literal view of hell, which is a real place of physical mental torment and anguish forever and ever that doesn't end and people can't choose to get out of it. Uh, annihilationism, which is that people go there for a specific amount of time to pay for their crimes and then they eventually are annihilated and don't exist. And then the third view that we want to talk about tonight is what's called Christian universalism. So when you hear universalism, you think, you know, new age, all paths lead kind of thing. Don't think that with this. Uh, this view agrees Jesus is the only way to heaven, that there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. But they believe eventually everyone will trust in Jesus. So uh, the definition of this view is that ultimately God will save everyone from hell. Hell is a tool that God uses to purify people who go there. So the experience in hell will bring people to their senses and they will trust in Jesus. Uh, this gives a purpose to hell that's restorative, not just destructive. Uh, and they argue that since God's purpose is to restore all things to their original design, since that's the meta-narrative of scripture, how can his restoration be complete while hell still exists? You see the logic behind that? That's, that's the view. So the scriptural support that they have, which uh, I think is, is very interesting, is Colossians 1.20. Uh, so I want to read to you Colossians 1.15 through 20. Uh, Paul says that he, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So, the Christian Universalists will say this verse says that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And it defines the all things in the context as all created things, all things in heaven, all things on earth, powers, principalities, right, which are demons, angels, all of that. It says he is reconciling to himself. So the context is stressing that he's he's reconciling all things. So how can hell exist forever or people exist in hell forever if he reconciles all things to himself? So if we answer yes, mm, that yeah. all things here means all things, you have to agree with a, uh, with a Christian universalist view somewhat. So that is yeah. their main verse that they say, what do you think that this means? So some issues that come from this is that... Um, you have to postulate Satan eventually gets won over by God's love, right? And eventually hell is emptied and Satan even comes around and says, hey, my bad on that. I know that was a big issue. Sorry about that. Yeah. And he comes to believe and to trust in God more and more. That is tough to reconcile with a couple of verses. Uh, one of them would be Revelation 20.10 that says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you go, wait a second, what does forever and ever mean if it, he's reconciling all things to himself? Uh, so that's kind of an issue. Another, another portion of scripture that speaks clearly to this, and these are uh, Jesus' words, and I know that God inspired all scripture, but these are specifically Jesus' words in Matthew 25, 41 through 46. Uh, this is when he's uh, separating the sheep and the goats. He says, Then he will say also to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, so eternal, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he'll answer them, truly I say to you, the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you read that and you say, okay, eternal, 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 forever and ever. These types of language uh, yeah. that we find in scripture seem to indicate that it's not uh, going to be emptied after a certain amount of time. However... The Christian Universalist will argue that the words for forever and eternal, aeon and aeonius, um, they mean a, a duration of time, not unending time forever and ever. And it's interesting because in scripture, uh, they are used like that in some places to say like before the ages, which means a specific age, not just eternity, right? And so um, that's what they'll point to is saying eternal doesn't always mean eternal. And so we need to do good hermeneutics and we need to translate these Greek words in their proper sense to understand it. Mm. Um, but a lot of what they do is change meanings of, of words. So one of the things too that they'll talk about is with sulfur, when Satan's thrown into burning sulfur, they'll say that sometimes sulfur is used to talk about refining silver. And so this phrase is used to talk about refinement. And so Satan's thrown there to be refined and to eventually be uh, let out because he's been changed. And hell is a tool that God uses in order to, uh, to save everybody. Right. Now, a couple of issues I, I have with this view, because I, I wish this view were, were true, right? Don't you? Like, this, this sounds great. Uh, if everyone eventually gets saved, that would be awesome. Uh, I think a couple of problems with it are, uh, one, it makes this a silly world, not a serious world, and our yeah. choices don't really matter too much. Because if, if I go to hell for uh, five billion years because I didn't believe in Jesus, let's say that's the, that's the time period it takes for me to come to my senses, um, and then I choose to believe in Jesus and I'm let out, 
Um, five billion years in comparison with eternity is like no time at all, right? It's like this big. So, so it makes, okay, 80 years in this world, believe in Jesus, skip over five billion years of hell for, and, and go to heaven immediately or go to hell for five billion years and then go to heaven forever. It makes, that, it makes this world and the choices we make very silly and not mm. very important. It makes evangelism not that big a deal. Right, because yeah, like, why, yeah, why evangelize? Yeah, eventually, yeah, no eventually, point. everyone's gonna make it. Even Satan's gonna make it, right? <laughs> so we're all gonna just get along later. Uh, it makes it a silly world. Um, I also don't know how being tormented makes you like the guy that's tormenting you. Have you ever thought about that? Like, is that a good method to date a girl? <laughs> like, hey, I got an idea. She doesn't like me, so I'm gonna torture her until she really chooses to love me. No, like <laughs> coercion isn't right. love, yeah. first of all. And so I don't know how I don't know how hell is used as a tool to get people to believe in Jesus. That's that's a tough one for me to swallow. I don't understand that at all. Yeah, it just it doesn't have the same like weight behind it. It just doesn't like like it's meaningless. Yeah, and it yeah. also it also goes against that Hebrews verse it's appointed for men once to die and then judgment. Right. Right. So so it seems like the whole Christian message is what you choose in this life about Jesus really matters, uh, and there's significance to it, and you need to make a choice before you die. Um, but with this view, it, it wouldn't make that uh, an issue at all. Yeah, because because yeah, eventually exactly. everyone chooses. So I don't know. I just have a few issues with it. The main one, though, would be uh, how does tormenting somebody make them love you? It seems like it would, it would forever drive them away from you. Mm. Um, so yeah. that's Christian uh, universalism. Yeah, yeah. And so now I'm going to get into a little bit more of the idea of the free will defense of hell. Okay. And so th this, again, this stems from the main overarching idea throughout this whole whole topic, really. I think this is the only thing that makes sense of hell. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. So that, that's kind of what we hold to is like this idea. Um, and it stems from, again, the overarching idea of this entire discussion is why would a loving God send people to hell, right? That, that's the question that stems from. Uh, does God send people to hell? That's a good question to ask. Does God send people to hell? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, like, what does God desire the fate of mankind to be? That's the question. And uh, I mean, there's tons of passages in scripture to go over in this area. Um, Ezekiel 18, 23, 32, uh, and 32 says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Mm. And then Ezekiel 33, 11 says, say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, right? So, so again, these passages in Ezekiel, I think they paint a pretty clear picture, right? He doesn't want us to choose wickedness. Mm -hmm. he, he says it right in the beginning of uh, Ezekiel 18, 23. He said, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, right? So, so it's, it's important to have that theological concept established that God does not want his creation to be destroyed. He does not take pleasure in that. Uh, I mean, in fact, we see the opposite, really, of that idea th all throughout Scripture, like John 3.16, God so loved the world, right? Or First uh, John 2.2, 2, not only our propitiation, but the whole world. That's yeah, he's the, the propitiation yeah. of everybody, not just us, but everybody. Yes, he exactly. actually died for all He died people. for everyone, yeah. not, just, not just us. So, And then uh, John 12.32, uh, draw all men to myself. Yeah, Jesus right? says, I have to be lifted up that I might draw all men to myself. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, 2 Peter 3.9, not wishing for any to perish. There's that word again, right? Yep. Uh, but for all to come to repentance. See, so, so God doesn't desire us to be destroyed or the, he doesn't desire the wicked to seek out death. He wants us to have life. Um, and then even First uh, Timothy 2, 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the, king, uh, to the knowledge of the truth. And so if God desires all men to be saved, right, and draws all men to himself, it seems that God doesn't really send anyone to hell. He might not send them there specifically. Right. Um, but maybe he allows them to choose that. And I, I think right? it would make sense, right? And that's kind of what we got into earlier about uh, the, the, 
free will idea, right? And that's yeah. what we're uh, this well, and this to. this does get into the crux of even within. <laughs> evangelical Christianity, what your right. soteriology is. So um, if you believe in unlimited atonement, that Jesus actually died on the cross for everybody, um, which these verses, I think, teach, um, then you have to ask the question, well, then why did people go to hell? Because if Jesus died for everybody's yes. sin, are people going to pay for their sin? Like, that's double jeopardy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait a second, how does that work? Right. So so the, the Calvinist side will say, well, it is limited atonement. He didn't actually die for everybody. Therefore, that makes sense of why people have to go to hell, because they're paying for their crimes, because Jesus didn't pay for their crimes. But if you believe in unlimited atonement, which I think the Bible clearly teaches, um, then you have to say, why do people go to hell? Is it to pay the penalty of their sin, or is there another reason? Right. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what it stems from, right? And if God desires all men to be saved and draws them to himself, then he shouldn't be sending anyone to hell. But we would, have to say yeah. he definitely allows people to of go course. to hell. Of course. And he allows evil to happen, right? Yes, he allows exactly. It. He doesn't cause it, he allows it. So how do we reconcile that when it comes to human free will? So he loves everybody, yeah, wishes yeah. they wouldn't go there. Why do people go there? And so the, this idea of free will is that you're, you're essentially believing that if people make a free choice, as we were talking about earlier, to reject the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf, then God respects this choice and will not force them to be with him, yeah. right? That's the idea. And that's, that's all where this stems from is that human dignity demands hell. That's another idea that, we want to, uh, that I want to touch base on is that human dignity demands hell. Yeah, I than, think so. If, if God wants yeah. to allow us to make real choices, he has to allow the possibility of us rejecting yes. him. Yeah, exactly. And it's to dignify and respect that choice. Yeah. And so, otherwise, he's, otherwise, he's treating us like we're a robot. Or he reprograms us to choose what he wants. Yeah, he yeah. He forces us because he's powerful. <laughs> he, he coerces us into doing what he wants us to do, which right. doesn't seem yeah. to be what's happening in the world, and it doesn't seem to be what Scripture teaches either. So you got a couple of cool quotes from guys that, yes. that talk about this. The, the, some, of the, some of these maybe uh, you may have heard of before. Some, a couple of these are pretty popular in Christian circles. Uh, but the first quote I have is from G.K. Chesterton. He says, hell is a monument to human freedom, and we might add human dignity. Hell is God's tribute to the freedom he gave each of us to choose whom we would serve it is a recognition that our decisions have significance that extends far down into the reaches of foreverness. Mm. Pretty, pretty serious, right? Yeah. Like, and I, 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 I love how he phrases that where he says, we might add that it adds, it's a monument to human dignity. Mm -hmm. That's, that's incredible. And then another quote from C.S. Lewis, uh, I've heard this one many times before where he says, uh, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Right. And that, that it's this idea of the people who are in there, they don't want to come out. Right. They want, yeah. they're locking themselves in. They're like, no, we we're choosing to be here. That's the thing you always have to think about is people who reject God in this life, they don't want him. Yeah. Like, like so to force them right. to be with you when they don't want you isn't very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know I know that there's like some agnostics on there and people who are on the fence. But if you're there's like hardcore um atheists out there who say like, look, I don't want to have anything to do with God. Well, mm -hmm. and that's the thing. And like it wouldn't be loving for God to force them to be in his presence for eternity if they completely were hateful towards him and rejected him. Yeah. They wouldn't be respecting their decision. And I think like going into the next section, yes, God's love demands hell. So when people, yes, the, the misconception is that God's sending people there against their will. I don't think he can do that. I don't think he does do that. He's sending people there mm. because that's where they want to be. They, they're choosing to not want him. And the only place to go apart from where he is is to hell. So God's love demands hell, and this is actually a defense of God's goodness. Yeah. God desires that people choose to love him, and he doesn't force his love upon people. So the idea that he wants us to love him, which uh, I think love is the is the overarching attribute that God has. Uh, everything's motivated by that. John 3.16, because God loved the world, mm. he sent, right? First yep. uh, John talks about how God is love, right? Not that he's loving, he is love. Um, over and over, faith, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, right? Love seems to be the overarching meta characteristic of who God is, and that's how he acts. And so the fact that he wants us to love him 
demands that we choose to, because you can't force people to love you. You can kidnap people, uh, you can rape people, but that isn't love. Forcing your love on somebody isn't loving. Uh, what you do to love somebody, right, guys, like if you, if you like a certain girl, you try to like show her, hey, I like you. You woo her to yourself. You, hey, I wanna, I wanna buy you this. I wanna take you out. I wanna be nice to you. I want you to see I'm funny. I want, right? That's that's what we do. Yeah. I want you to know who I am because I like you. Yeah. And if she rejects you, which guys, you ever been rejected by a girl? <laughs> the most loving thing you can do to a girl who rejects you is beat her over the head and take her. No, right? No, we'd all go. <laughs> you're nuts. The most loving thing you can do is respect the rejection. Yeah. And isn't it so much sweeter too? Like when in, in like the romantic example here, when that person chooses you over mm -hmm. everyone else, right? It's they're choosing to love you of their own free will, right? There's so much, it's so much more rewarding. In that. It's not love unless no. they choose it. No. So, yeah. so God desires people to choose to love him. He doesn't force his love upon us. Love implies a real choice. Yes. And that is why hell exists, because God actually honors our choices. God respects rejection from people, because he can't. I don't think you can force people to love you. People mm -hmm. have to choose to love. And God actually wants us to love him. He doesn't want robots that he programs. That'd be easy. He could create a world where everybody goes to heaven, but it'd be the type of world where human beings don't have free choice, where um, the old theologian said automatons, right, where robots, where computers that he programs to say, I love you. But we all know how inept that is because you'd rather have a real boyfriend or girlfriend than a computer that says, I love you, because yeah, right? you told it to say that, right? We all know real love is more precious and it's better than that. So since God can't force free creatures to uh, be reformed, forced reformation is like the worst punishment possible, right? Mm, to, yeah. to force you to change and to love him is a cruel and kind of an inhumane thing. Um, and so he respects rejection. And I think that that makes sense of why people go to hell. Um, I think that hell is eternal uh, and it's a terrible, it's a terrible thing. I think it, it was created for angels and demons, the Bible clearly says. Um, but because people can't be annihilated and they won't allow God to reform them, where else are they supposed to go? Can, can you imagine mm. what would heaven be like if God just let everyone in? Now think about this. As a Christian, we're told we're a new creation, right? And that interior, our interior is different. We have a new heredity in Jesus Christ. We're not in the old Adam. Now we're different, and uh, one day our bodies are going to follow along with what's happened in our souls. But there's people walking around that are not new creations. They're not fixed. They're not redeemed. And so how does it work to go into an eternal place of bliss and goodness and sinlessness with a group of people who are still sinful and corrupt. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How, does, how does that work? So, so you have the, pe the pedophile who doesn't want to be changed. How does that fit in heaven? So I also think, and C.S. Lewis talks about this idea that we have to have resurrected bodies in Christ. We have to have the gift of eternal life given to us because apart from that, we aren't the type of being that can actually exist in heaven. Um, it, you can almost imagine like it's too real for us to take in our corrupted state. We need to be fixed in order to get there. And people who won't allow themselves to get fixed, I don't know how they can be there. Other than God forcing them to get fixed, which again violates uh, their freedom. So those are yeah. a couple of the, the ideas about why God allows it. Um, but also some of the, 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 three main, uh, the three main ideas in evangelical circles about different views on hell, how long it is, and what happens to people when they get there. So we want to take a, a few minutes to open it up for any questions you guys have about hell uh, on these topics, on different topics. So if you have any questions, we've got a couple of mics set up over here, uh, and we'd love for you to use that because we can record it for the podcast, and then people will hear your lovely voices forever into eternity. Yeah, no uh, pressure, right? Yeah, no pressure at all. <laughs> So if you have a question, come on up here and ask it. And if not, we'll end and then we can drink some more coffee and have a good time talking yeah. outside of it. You want to get up. I see you have a question. Yeah. Okay. So my, is it working? Okay. So my question is, um, along with the free will defense of hell, 
Um, I was wondering what you guys had to say about those who call God's name but don't follow him. Mm -hmm. So like in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Um, so what you would have to what say What does that to say that. in Matthew? I don't know. Um, it's saying like, um, you call my name but you don't know me. Mm -hmm. um, so I was curious what you'd had to say to like those Christians who would say that they are going to heaven, but God says, you don't know me. Yeah, I think that, um, so Matthew, could you tell me that again? Because Matthew I make sure 7, 21 through 23. 7, 21 through 23. All right, let's just read that real quick. It says, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So um, I love this, I love this uh, section of scripture because if you notice what he says is, their defense is, we did a lot of good stuff for you. So it's not that they didn't do work. We prophesied in your name. We cast mm. out demons for you. We did all of this stuff for you. So the argument they're making is our works should qualify us. So this isn't like somebody says they believe in Jesus and then I don't really care about following him. These are people who did works for him. And he says, it's not about you doing works for me. It's about me knowing you. And it says specifically about doing the will of his father. Well, what, what, does, what does Matthew even say the will of the Father is? What does John say the will of the Father is? To believe in the one whom he sent. Mm. And so I, I don't think that this passage is really talking about uh, lackadaisical Christians who don't take their Christianity serious. I think it's more talking about like the Mormon who will stand there and say, I did all this stuff for you. And he says, you didn't believe in me. You weren't trusting in me. I think, I think that the Muslim will stand before him and say, we, we, you were a prophet and we did all this stuff. And he'll say, you didn't know me. So I don't think this is about Christians not living up to it because their defense is we did work, <laughs> right? Yeah. But his argument is it's not about your works. It's about you believing me, doing the will of the Father, knowing me. Does mm -hmm. that help? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think Christians who believe in Jesus, I think anyone who believes in Jesus is saved and I believe in eternal security. I don't think you can get out of it. When you're born again, you yeah. can't be unborn. Right. Uh, you can have a bad relationship with your dad, but you can't not be related to your dad. And so that's what I yeah. think about it. Does that help? Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you. Good question. Yeah, cool. George, did you have a question? Yeah. Oh, man. He's in seminary. This is going to be a tough question. I can feel <laughs> right. it. No, it's not really a tough question, but I just wanted to say first, on behalf of Palmcroft College Ministry, thanks for being here. Yeah. I think we're all better for uh, being here and listening. But also, just as for the whole ministry and everybody, while we have you here and while we're listening, I'm curious, as you guys are sitting there, in apologetics, what would you say is the biggest threat to the faith of college ministry students in terms of doctrine? Is there, oh, is there mm. one thought or doctrine that you would say, hey, this is the most at stake right now, 2021, study up, be ready for well, this, or any word of wisdom you'd give to us? You can go first. I've got a lot of thoughts. I've, got, I've got a major one in mind, actually, that I've seen popping up. Uh, it's coming in a lot of uh, progressive churches, and it's been creeping in, but the new apostolic reformation, mm. um, that's, that's becoming really, really big. And it, it's dangerous. Like It's growing in progressive Christianity a lot. And um, essentially, if for those of you who don't know, uh, we did do podcasts on this, but just to summarize it, uh, the idea is um, this belief that there are modern day apostles, uh, like just like the ones that were alive during the time of Jesus. Yeah, not just gifted, but yes. office-wise. Like they, they, they have the, the office, office of, of apostleship, like that it was passed down all the way to modern times. And there are modern day apostles and that they are authoritative too. Not just, not just that they have the title or whatever, like they, they have authority. And it's to very tell, to tell Palmcroft what to do. Yeah, exactly. That's what exactly. And there's a lot of uh, progressive churches that are out there right now that this is growing in. Um, they even uh, there's even a uh, a new translation of the Bible that they have made uh, the Passion Translation. Uh, the person who came 
created that translation had actually, he was a big uh, proponent of new apostolic reformation. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm seeing that like, that's been a, a real concern to me because I'm seeing the, that grow in a lot of progressive churches. And it's not even like one specific denomination. Uh, this theology and this idea is just kind of creeping up all over the place. Yeah, and it, and it comes with a lot of bad stuff. So yeah. like, the Passion Translation, so that's not Louis Giglio, just so you know. Like, that's a oh, different yeah. Passion yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. We, I always want to make sure that, that they're legit. Like, Louis awesome. It gets confused a lot. But the Passion yeah. Translation, it's in your Bible app, um, and it's bad. Uh, he changed a whole bunch of stuff. Yep. Whenever one guy translates the Bible, that's a red flag. You just go, wait a second, wait a second. This usually takes teams of people. One guy does it. Yeah. Um, he also said that he, he Jesus came to him with a vision one night, took him to heaven, told him he could take books from heaven. And he took three, and then he saw another one that he really wanted. But Jesus said, you can't take it. Uh, but later, I'll bring you back, and you can have it. He said this on a TV broadcast. You can watch yeah, it. And, and the, the guy interviewing him said, what was the book you wanted to take that Jesus wouldn't let you? <laughs> And he said, on the cover of it, it said, John chapter 22. And the guy goes, well, John only has 21 chapters. And he's like, no, there's another one. And God's going to give that to me one day. Wait a second. Like, what is going on here? Like, no, you're not writing new yeah. scripture. Like, so the, the NAR stuff is crazy. And it creeps in because their music's popular. So like Bethel Church is a big part of the NAR. Some parts of Hillsong are a big part of it. And so we just got to be careful not to let these ideologies seep in, especially with the schools of resurrection, the school of healing. They have all this stuff up in Redding, California you can go to. Yeah. Um, and then the, the crazy part to me is like, COVID ravaged Reading, and they were praying against it, and it didn't help. Forest fires ravaged mm -hmm. Reading, and they were praying against it, and it didn't help. So in my head, I'm like, is this even working? Like, it, like, it looks, I don't believe in that theology, but uh, it looks bad in, for, for God when we say, oh, we can do all this magic, and we can't. So I agree. I think yeah. the NAR stuff's good. And I would say, from my perspective, George, it's just progressive Christianity is bad. Um, on a lot of levels. And there's a really good book that Elisa Childers wrote called, um, I think it's Progressive Gospel. Uh, really mm. good that just came out. And uh, it's on this idea, that, and it's happening to younger people. It's moving in in a lot of areas. I mean, I, I'm talking like the Enneagram stuff, uh, which is come, comes from the occult. I'm talking about um, these ideas about um, social justice to a crazy extent that, that devoids the gospel from it. Um, and these aren't new things. They're just getting real popular. Yeah. Um, because young people always, uh, college students always, like to be activists. And there's nothing wrong with that if it's for something good and true and noble. Um, but, I mean, when I was in college, we were activists for, you know, invisible children and the army that was happening in Uganda and this guy's abducting kids. And, you know, when my parents were in the 80s and then the 70s and the college students are always active yeah. because we want to make a change. And that's awesome. Um, but we should focus on what the most important thing is and not get derailed because yeah. Satan wants to derail us with unimportant things it, to knock us out of the fight. Right. And again, this also kind of stems back to what we talked about earlier, right? Open and closed handed issues. Uh, uh, like we have to be very careful with our theology and that we're making sure that um, uh, we're, we're watching out for these closed handed issues and we're keeping like the core doctrines and yeah. not getting that confused with what's happening in the progressive church. And that's coming up right now. And cause it's just a real danger and it's something we need to be aware of. Yep. I'm always, it, whenever somebody says, Hey, here's something new for Christianity. I'm always like, yeah, wait a second. Like, yeah. I don't know if yeah. we need new stuff all the time. I think we're, 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 in a book that's at least, you know, the newest part of it's a couple thousand years old. And uh, not that we know everything about this book, but whenever there's a new thing, it's a red flag to me to say, wait, I need, maybe it's good, but I need to take a step back and I need to analyze it according to what scripture says. So yeah, I'd say that that's the biggest thing, relativism and then uh, progressive Christianity for sure. Good question, George. Yeah. Any other questions before we close out and drink uh, Palmcroft out of coffee? Oh yeah, come on up. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> My name's Emma. Nice Emma, to meet nice you guys. To meet you. Um, okay, so I have a question that goes into a little bit more of the Calvinism and Arminianism side, which I know is probably a whole sure. podcast in itself. So you don't have to fully explain, but I thought um, I would at least bring it up. Um, in Romans 9, talking about God's sovereignty, mm -hmm. there's a passage that I think may conflict a little bit with the idea of humans being able to fully choose hell on their own. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to read it for you so that you guys don't have to. But um, so it's Romans 9, um, starting in, 
uh, verse 14, says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Oh, no, wait, sorry, let's go up a little bit more because then there's more context. Um, so starting in one second. Okay, starting in verse 11, um, kind of halfway through. Um, okay, wait. I just read through this, but... That's all right. Yeah, that's Romans 9, 11? Yeah, Romans 9. Um, but I just want to make sure that all of it has context. I don't know sure. where to start, though. Okay, well, I'll just start in 14, and you guys probably know the context of okay. it. But it says, what shall we say then? Is there, injust is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might, be, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering about the last part, about if God has a choice of having mercy or hardening people, then mm -hmm. how would that relate into how we have total free will to choose heaven or hell? Yeah, well, the context of Romans 9 is talking about Israel, mm -hmm. right? Not about individual salvation at all. Uh, and he's, he's making an argument about, so has God gone back on his promises to Israel? So how does this work if we're the remnant that's left for salvation while our countrymen are denying God? Mm. And they're, right? So that's, that's the context. And then he goes into the, even the stuff about uh, through Isaac, your descendants will come, and then the twins, right? Jacob I love, Esau I hated, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Uh, so anyways... With that, um, what's important, especially when he's quoting the Old Testament, is to say, what parts of the Old Testament are these coming from? And then what's the context mm -hmm. of those? Um, so with the, like, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, he's quoting from Malachi, um, which is written, let me do the math, <laughs> 1,500 years after Jacob and Esau existed. And he's talking about the people groups, Israel and Edom. Mm -hmm. He's not talking about the individual mm -hmm. Esau and Jacob. Um, Esau, I think, actually is a believer. Like, he reconciles with Jacob. They get together. They bury their dad together. They hug and embrace. They make up. Like, so he's talking about the people groups. And Paul's point is that God uses certain people groups for a time. And just because we're descendant of Abraham doesn't mean we're part of what God's doing in his plan. Because look at Ishmael. God didn't use him, right? He used Isaac. And then, oh, look at Esau and Jacob. He didn't use the Edomites. He used Jacob and the Israelites, right? So that's what he's pointing out uh, through this. So when it gets to the hardening of Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh, first of all, a couple of things. Pharaoh hardened his heart, mm -hmm. right? So that happens first. And then God can harden people if he wants to. And I don't have a problem with that because in God's omniscience, he knows what people will do if given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. But we can't take this as he does that to every person. Mm -hmm. The fact that the Bible states he hardened Pharaoh means he isn't doing that to everybody. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. it's, it's an admittance that that's not how he normally operates because he's telling us he did it to that guy. Mm -hmm. So we can't take this as, well, he hardens everyone's heart or he opens everyone's heart. Mm -hmm. um, so with, mm -hmm. the, with the Calvinist view, which neither of us are, um, but we're not Arminian either because you don't think you can lose your salvation. Um, the Calvinist answer to hell is God did it for his glory. And he, he created people that were destined to go there in a deterministic system who never could choose to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, when you get to the hell answer, that's yeah. the answer, which I just, I don't believe in Calvinism, but I also think that's just such an inept answer about hell. Yeah. Um, now, when you contrast this about Israel in a specific situation with what he says about, I wish all men would. So either God is keeping some people from being able to believe in him, and then he's telling us he really wishes that people would, mm -hmm. which that's called a lie, right, or a contradiction. So we have to decide, okay, which, which is it? Which, and how does scripture interpret scripture? Mm -hmm. And if we go with this, um, then we have to say, well, God is doing this. What happens is there's the secret mm -hmm. will of God, and then the stated will, and, they, and, right. and, and the scripture never talks about that. That's just a made-up category. And so I would say that when we read this, we have to read it in the context which it's in. Is It's to Israel about a specific thing. And he's showing them that just because you are a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're part of what God's going to do to bring about the Messiah, but also to continue on in the future. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, I know that does. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, and I have Calvinist friends. 
uh, and I love them, uh, but just disagree yeah. on, on, on these types of things. So good question. Yeah, Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. We've done a lot of podcasts on free will and, uh, and uh, compatibilism, which is the Calvinist idea of free will. Yeah, so yeah. if you want to check out those episodes, we've had Leighton Flowers on, and he does a lot on this. We've done our own on free will compatibilism. Yeah, right. So you can go back and listen to those, which really get into that issue specifically. So good question. All right. Well, hey, guys, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Thanks for listening uh, for all of our listeners out there and watchers out there. Thanks for being with Christ Culture and Coffee, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks. If you enjoyed the show and felt that this podcast was beneficial to you, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you become a Level 4 supporter on our Patreon page, you can get yourself one of our stoneware, Christ Culture, and coffee mugs, as well as a t-shirt and a sticker. We are available on all podcasting platforms, as well as YouTube, and we are also available on all social media platforms. Thanks so much for listening to Christ Culture and Coffee.